And the second disclaimer is, you know, anything that a speaker mentions or that I mentioned throughout these Zooms is not legal advice. Definitely reach out to an attorney like Jess um, if you have specific questions based on specific facts. But without further ado, we have Jess Gonzalez here with us today. Jess is a, uh, a jack of all trades in a lot of regards, but also, you know, it seems like her core expertise outside of doing advocacy work and education work is cannabis and, and trademark work. And I'll let Jess introduce herself more, but we go, I don't know, when did we first meet Jess? Probably five years ago or so in, in New York City? Yeah. Yeah, I think like five years ago. Yep. But yeah, I'll let you introduce yourself and we can kind of kick this off. Yeah, sure. So, hey, everybody, thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon from wherever you are in the country or the world. So my name is Jess Gonzalez, and I operate a couple of atmospheres in the cannabis industry. So on the private side of things, I am an attorney. Um, I stopped representing cannabis applicants, so I still type of work that I do is based on trademark work and brand protection, and then it's some back-end compliance work. I also operate in the academic atmosphere as well. So I'm a professor at two colleges where I teach a cannabis policy course and a cannabis history course as well. And those are always really fun. And then I'm also working on the government side of things. Um, so I was the first contractor awarded a contract with New Jersey to build out the Cannabis Training Academy and Technical Assistance Program, where we're going to be educating eager entrepreneurs and students in New Jersey and beyond who want to apply for licensure here in New Jersey. Awesome. Tell us more about the Academy. I'm super interested in learning about it because it's really, it's something a lot of states have not um, really tackled or tackled effectively. So I was excited to hear that New Jersey was taking that step. Can you tell us a bit more about the program itself? Yeah, 100%. So as we know, like education is really what's going to propel this industry forward. And so what the Cannabis Training Academy is, it's going to be a asynchronous cannabis educational program, which means there are going to be pre-recorded webinars that students can tune into from wherever they are at whatever time of day they want or whatever educational background they're from. So right now we're contemplating about 10 levels of education somewhere between 65 to 70 courses built out to take you through the application process. It's really starting with fundamentals or talking about the history of cannabis prohibition, the history of cannabis in New Jersey, legislation, laws, municipal finance, taxes, taking you through a cannabis business plan exercise and walking you through SOPs and the required plans. So really holding your hand throughout the entire application process. But what we're also going to be offering is a community of vetted professionals. So, you know, Ryan, I know you know, and folks on here in the industry may know, this industry is plagued by predatory practices left and right, right? And not just from the investor side that we hear things, but also from professional service providers um, who take advantage of eager entrepreneurs who just may not know better. And so what we also want to provide are vetted instructors and mentors. So instructors will be teaching courses within their respective fields. And mentors are really going to be folks who are going to have a little bit more of a personal touch with the students and be able to offer some human live interaction. So for example, uh, instructors are going to be required to do about, you know, one webinar two times a month, mentors, you know, once a week or two times a month, just so that folks would be able to answer their, you know, ask their questions, speak to a human, but somebody who actually has practical 
experience in the cannabis industry, not just somebody who's reading about the industry and decides that they want to teach it. Somebody who's had success, who has experience that way, when they're talking to the students, they can provide them with a little bit more color of what it's really like. And at the same time, we're also going to have a legacy to legal component. So we are not leaving out the legacy operators, but we're going to be bringing on legacy operators who successfully transitioned from legacy to the regulated market to also provide classes on what that experience was like, because that's a very unique experience. So we want to make sure that legacy operators not just come in as students, but also see themselves as mentors or instructors. So it will be asynchronous, it will be online. And the best thing, or one of the best things about it, you know, for me personally, is everything will be translated into Spanish as well. Um, and I think that that's just not something that we typically see in a lot of these programs. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't, uh, the, the last part of it in terms of it being in multiple languages is really neat. And it, my general rule of thumb when it comes to service providers is that you as a potential applicant should never be paying an attorney, a consultant, or any other type of service provider to learn how to do something, you know, is, is generally the rule I live by. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why it's not just going to be, you know, education and it's not just for folks who want to apply for licenses, but it's also going to be for those folks who also want to support the plant touching industry, but may not want to touch the plant themselves. So for example, Ryan, as you were saying, you know, maybe an attorney doesn't have to learn on the job. They can learn through going through our program, accountants, marketing folks, people in IT, even though you're not going to be touching the plant, you still have to have knowledge about the regulatory structure and prohibitions and restrictions. So we also want to make sure that those who don't want to touch the plant can also access these courses and help support the industry as well. I, I suspect this question will kind of coincide with your advocacy work. So how did this all come to be in terms of um, did you approach the state and propose this program? Did they come to you? Was it somewhere in the middle? How did it all come to be? I was just curious as far as the origin story, especially if we have people in the room who are thinking like, wow, I, maybe we need to do this in my state, you know? Yeah. So this is actually something that, <clears throat> that I have been advocating for, for almost six years. So for the folks here, maybe not familiar with my work, I entered the cannabis industry through advocacy. And so I was really integral in helping to shape legislation and regulation and municipal ordinances here in New Jersey. And one of the things that I always advocated for was state-funded education and technical assistance, because you have a lot of these sort of private, you know, companies out there who are doing this type of work in their state and then begin applying in other states, but they don't really have a sort of boots on the ground knowledge about what happened in that state. And they don't really have an, an, really an understanding of the community of, you know, that particular state. So the way that this came about was, one, we advocated for it, and then the New Jersey Business Action Center really took it upon themselves to really start forming an idea of what this program could be like. And they actually, folks from the New Jersey Business Action Center, actually took a course that I created for Hudson County Community College, a licensing course. It was about a month. They were students, you know, mm -hmm. as part of that. So they were familiar with my work and my role as an instructor. And um, they came out with a request for proposals. Uh, so I applied with my team. We probably spent like 100 hours preparing the application. It was a really 
intense application. The application itself was a couple hundred pages. Um, so we prepared that and we scored the highest in the state. And that's how I got it. That's awesome. And I, I think it really, like, I, I don't think you can undervalue the you know, the advocacy work that you did to that point. And it's important, you know, to, for state regulators or regulators at any local level, even to really, you know, know who you are and, and recognize that, you know, you're not some fly by night company who's only trying to get into this, like to make a quick yeah. like, that you really care. And, I, and that's got to contribute. I mean, obviously there's an RFP process and they, they have a rubric for how it's scored, but like, I, I really the advocacy end of this, I don't think can be undervalued in all of it. No, not at all. You know, because when it came to even preparing it, I had to tell a story really about the work that I've done here in New Jersey, both on the education and the advocacy side. So this to me was just a natural culmination of everything that I had been doing within New Jersey for the past six years of not just working, you know, as an educator, but working as an attorney and actually having the experience of walking these applicants successfully through the application process, which I think definitely had my application stand out in the fact that my team and I actually had success working with these applicants. Um, whereas some other companies that had applied didn't have that practical hands-on experience, a little bit more theory, less real life. And so I think because I had that, I was able to tell a really good story of hey, I've been doing this work and I'm really comfortable with the legislation and I'm really comfortable with regulation because I worked on them and because I provided language you know, for this. And hey, all these materials that you're requesting, I have all of it already because this is the type of education I've been doing for years. And I, that's a lesson in and of itself for people putting the applications together, even outside of the other topics that we're talking about. You really, I always tell people, because I've reviewed applications at the local level in a couple of different municipalities and it's always... There's always a big distinction to me between an application that is basically just regurgitating regulations and an application that actually has practical standard operating procedures that are built out based on those regulations. Exactly. And, you know, one thing that I also really can't undermine is while I'm the New Jersey person, I'm the lead consultant on there. My subcontractors are from out of state. And the reason for that is here in New Jersey, we don't have people enough who have that breadth of experience that you really need to have working with different applicants, working in different regulatory structures. So my two subcontractors, all, you know, all women actually have been doing this type of work with applicants for close to 12 years and have worked in 27 different states with over 250 licensees. So when we're putting this together, you know, I really thought very intentionally about the team that I wanted to bring on. And while I know the community here in Jersey, and I've invested in the community, you know, for years, I also understand that there is a need to understand what happened in other states with these applicants, because right now what we're seeing in Jersey, we're still years behind you know, some of these other states. So what happened in these other states likely will happen here if our people making the laws don't learn from the other <laughs> states. So I wanted to make sure that I also had some out-of-state experience with me to help complement that. That makes total sense. What's what's the timeline in terms of courses coming out? Ben had asked a question in the chat. Has the list of courses been finalized? Um, and is it available to be viewed anywhere? So what's like the general documents <laughs> you guys are working with? Yeah, so um, we have put out there the levels. So you can actually see what each sort of level will entail, but we have not published the full list of courses. 
So it is still currently being finalized. Um, we want to make sure that it's as comprehensive, you know, as possible. And just a reminder to everybody that this is just the first iteration of this program. So obviously it will evolve as this industry evolves. And right now with the New Jersey Business Action Center, we're focused on business. It's a business advocacy center. And so it'll really focus a lot on the operational business aspects, but putting together an application and bringing somebody through that. Iterations after the fact will likely entail, you know, now you got your license, what do you need to do to operate, right? Think about, you know, compliance, that aspect, which I know is something very near and dear to you, right? Um, but for right now, it's really looking at, you know, the blueprint that the CRC has provided for the application process, coupled with our experience working with applicants of what do we need to focus on a little bit more? Do people even know what a standard operating procedure is? Do they understand their tax implications? Do they understand how to even put together a cannabis business plan? That's the type of stuff that we're going to work through. So for the answer to uh, the question that somebody asked, no, but if you do want to understand a little bit about a program, we've done a couple of presentations with the New Jersey Economic Development Agency. So if you go on the new NJEDA's website, you can find the recording and you can find my presentation there where I go in a little bit more deeper about the, about the, the program. How do people, you know, go about getting involved both as an operator saying I'm an applicant or a future applicant and I want to use these resources or even if I'm a service provider and I'm trying to up my game in terms of my knowledge, how do you go about getting involved? Yeah, so to get involved, um, you know, let's say like as a student, for example, right now we're having folks sign up for updates. We have not yet launched our communications plan. We have really just not yet. Um, oh, sorry, just one second. Sorry about that. Um, and so, sorry, where was I? As far as just timelines for launching. Oh, yes. Timelines for launching. So still being worked out. Um, we are hoping we are going to be launching in 2023. Um, really aiming for somewhere between the September, October mark. But, you know, for everybody out there, it's government. And we also want this to be done very intentionally. And so if you're looking to get involved as a student, make sure you sign up for updates. You can go on the CRC's website and it's right there on the front page you sign up. So same thing, if you want to be an instructor or a mentor, just sign up for the update. So once we start launching the campaign and once we really start making the open call for instructors and mentors, you'll be on the list, um, on the email list for you to know. Very cool, very cool. What does... Um... Well, let's switch gears actually a little bit. I do. One of the questions that came up uh, was in regards to CureLeaf. As I understand it, the renewal got um, got re renewal application in New Jersey at the state level got rejected. Is that right? application to renew their annual adult use license, which means that as of April 20th or the 21st, they will no longer be able to sell adult use cannabis in New Jersey. And, you know, we can go as deep or as not or as shallow into this as you want. I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat, but do you have like a general idea um, as to why it was rejected? Because <laughs> I, my understanding of what happened, I think kind of Kind of coincides with an advocacy discussion. I'll I'll, I'll dry that dry that link out in a little bit. But do you have like a general idea of what happened in terms of why it was rejected? So a lot of the questions that the CRC was asking them was about the labor union negotiations and about the 
really abrupt layover uh, layoffs that they had um, without really informing the CRC, without really informing anybody of what was happening. And so here's the thing that you really have to recognize about New Jersey is unions are very, very big in New Jersey. Unions help elect the governor. Unions are a enormous part of the application process. If nobody here remembers when the CRC was first created, one of the original members of the CRC was supposed to be a labor union leader. Um, then the NAACP got involved, threatened to sue. They took him off um, and the place of it took uh, Commissioner Charles Barker. And I say that so that people understand that when it comes to labor unions here in Jersey, it's a big deal and it's not something to be taken lightly where in other states, a labor peace agreement may not mean anything here. It means a lot. And so there was a lot of discussion about them potentially interfering with labor negotiations and then just deciding to lay everybody off uh, pretty abruptly. At least that's the information we received yesterday from the commission. Yeah, and from an advocacy perspective, I mean, I would imagine CureLeaf has a team, not only a team that's putting together the renewal materials. And I, my understanding is that they were, or at least the article I read made it seem like they weren't completely forthright with their renewal application materials as it related to the LPA, the labor peace agreement. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, exactly. So it looked like there was like some information missing. It looks like there wasn't as much transparency um, in their documents really as they should have. And if anybody saw what happened yesterday, they had a bit of a tough time answering some pretty basic questions. Um, so it was pretty clear that there was certain information that obviously was not being, you know, divulged. Um, and, you know, once again, the CRC just did not look kindly onto that, especially when you're laying off so many workers, you know, at one time, everybody's sort of left of, you know, what happened? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised because we, uh, California has had the LPA agreement requirement since day one, and I, there, there's not really been much enforcement on that end, and that's kind of surprised me. So it didn't surprise me to see that headline yesterday when I dug deeper to mm -hmm. see that that was the issue. Yeah, because here also, you know, in Jersey is, you know, you have your labor peace agreement that you have to sign when you submit your application. But then from the moment that you begin operating, you have 200 days to enter into a collective bargaining agreement. Um, and anybody here has ever worked on the labor and employment side of things that I used to when I first became a lawyer, those things are hefty. They are big lifts. It takes a lot of negotiations um, and doesn't seem like they were able to fulfill that statutory requirement with that backdrop in mind you know what are your general tips for advocacy i mean obviously you know the cure relief is a, is a unique circumstance that uh could be the i think the subject of a, its own zoom but just generally like if you're getting prepared to to present in front of a state or local regulator what are your general tips for preparing and then presenting in front of those people you know, Ryan, I think you're really going to appreciate this because people ask me a lot, you know, like, how are you so successful in your advocacy? How are you able to package, you know, a lot of this information? And I really got to give it to law school for teaching us the IRAC method or if, you know, or crack, whichever one it was. And so for the folks here who uh, did not go to law school and don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the way that we were taught to structure arguments was issue, rule, analysis, conclusion, and this is very neat sort of type of package. 
And so I remember when I first started embarking and I wanted to put together really persuasive arguments, I realized like, I need to tell them what the issue is. I need to cite exactly what rule I'm really not agreeing with my analysis of it and then reiterate my conclusion. And you would think that, I mean, that was one of the one things from law school, you know, that really, you know, stuck with me. But the other, you know, aspect of it is, is you really have to understand who it is that you're talking to. So you may be involved in cannabis day in and day out, but these regulators or these legislators or these municipal officials are not. It may be 5%, 10%, maybe less than that of their day. So if you're coming in there, guns blazing, talking about all these problems that you're having, well, guess what? You're probably number like 45 that day that yelled at them. And people are yelling at them about potholes and traffic lights and noise complaints. And you're coming in there talking to them about something that's very complex. It's still very new to them. So one of the best advice that I got from somebody who works in New Jersey policy, he, one day I, I spoke to him and I was like, I got to tell you all these issues that I'm having and the, you know, and these solutions. And he was like, just, just, just hold on a second. Talk to me like I'm five years old. And it was one of the greatest things that he ever told me because that's when I realized I can't go in there with these very complex ideas. I have to be able to break it down to them in a language they understand, but I have to package it with a solution. Because if not, then you're just bitching. And people are just bitching at them all day, day in and day out. So you have to provide a solution for them, right? And then you got to do the work for them. You say, hey, here's what I think should be written instead. I redlined it for you. I put forth some substitute you know, language in here. Tell me what you think. And here is my reasoning behind this and how this is going to play out in real life. So there is a lot of work, you know, that you have to do. But I think sometimes folks think if I just tell them what I think and my problem, they'll come up with a solution for me. And that's just not how it works, because once again, this is not what they do day in and day out. And one thing that's always struck me about you is like, it's very clear that you're passionate about this and that you believe in it. And I think that's a huge part of being an effective advocate. But to your point, you also have to balance that with the understanding that you just laid out, like people like you and I who are in this every single day may take for granted what we take as, you know, common knowledge would literally, I mean, I, when I periodically take criminal cases, I'm spending at least an hour explaining to a district attorney who is supposed to know the law, the difference between marijuana and hemp. I mean, so just the baseline of all this, we have to, I think, remind ourselves that people aren't quote unquote in it in the same way that we are. No, not, not at all. And I also think, though, that like, you know, for the folks out there who may be like, well, that's really good for you, Ryan and Jess, you guys are lawyers, and you know, really how to put this together. Well, that's not really true. Because most of my ideas and the solutions that I got came from the community, it came from people who are applying, it came from business owners, it came from people who are really in the trenches doing this. Um, what I was able to do was I was just able to package it in a very specific way, because the majority of my career is how do I package information in a way that's going to make sense to the client? I have experience taking information that is complex and making it into digestible, you know, bite-sized pieces. And so for folks, you know, if you have an issue that you're seeing in your business, you have a very unique perspective that these legislators don't have because they're not going through that process. They're not taking their weekends and their evenings to fill out an application and trying to go out there and raise money and trying to lock down site control, you're doing that. So if you find something that is an obstacle to you in policy, 
You need to be able to explain that. You need to be able to provide a story. You need facts, evidence, and statistics. I think there has to be a beautiful combination of a real-life story that happened, mixed with some facts, mixed with some stats, mixed with a solution. Because one, you have to show the humanizing aspect of it, but that only goes so far. And then there's some folks who they want the numbers, they want the facts, because when they make a policy decision about it, they want to be able to go back and say, well, this is the evidence that I'm getting from. So you also have to remember that these legislators or municipal officials or whoever, they also want to look good to the public. And guess what? They want to get reelected. So if you put it in a way of like, I'm trying to make you look good. I'm trying to do this for you. I'm on your side. I'm trying to make sure that you don't get completely run over by the press or by your constituents. And here's the information and evidence that you can use if they start to question your, you know, your policy decision. That's how you do it. You have to do a lot of the heavy lifting for them. And it, it is, it could be tough, you know, as well, but that's where your community comes in place. And I think that's the other aspect, you know, of this is it's also hard to go about this alone, but gathering people, organizing people, I mean, shepherding humans is a huge feat, right? It is a tremendous lift. And so one of the things when I'm advocating is if I'm going to get 10 people to come with me somewhere or appear in a hearing, I'm going to organize and shepherd them. And I'm going to say, these are, these are the five points that we are hitting. Because understand, people have a low attention span, right? So five, less than five points. And we're all going to make the same points. Because if I'm talking about two or three points, you're talking about another three points. The other people are talking about another five points. Well, guess what? You just created noise. What I try to do is I try to get everybody on the same page. And it's like, listen, if your values don't align with me, that's fine. But if they do, this is how we're going to go about it. So that it is a concerted effort. And they keep hearing the same thing in the same way over and over and over again. That's oh, the way that I went about it when it came to legislation. And so maybe, you know, what folks haven't heard, you know, the story that I've told of, when legislation dropped in Jersey three days after we voted, like, can you believe that? We voted November 3rd, 67% of New Jersey residents voted in favor. November 6th, the legislation drops, like three days later at like 5 p.m. on a fucking Friday. And then on Monday, the hearing is scheduled. Because why? They didn't think anybody was going to read it. But guess what? I was reading it and I, pressed the, and I pressed the panic button. You know, I looked at it. I said, this can't be it. This cannot go through. I called 15 of my friends from around the country. That Sunday, I held a Zoom call where we went over the five points we were all going to hit. And on Monday, all 15 showed up and all hit the same five points. And we stopped that legislation from moving forward. And then we did it again until we actually got what we needed to get in there. And we were not successful on all fronts. Out of six, six acts that we had, we got half of them and then we got two more in regulation. So that to me is extremely successful. Yeah. The, the next question I was going to ask you is like, do you have like a, a greatest hits list in terms of common questions that you get, but you kind of answered it. And I think you're really highlighting the importance of, you know, it's not just about being passionate. It's also about being prepared in all of this is what it sounds like. Being prepared and also taking the time to prepare your community as well because you can prepare you know yourself you know all you want but if the people that you're asking to come and help you 
are not aligning on the same mission and they're not stating the same things, once again, you're creating chaos, you're creating confusion, you're creating noise. Think about like, if somebody repeats something to you five times, you're more likely to remember it rather than somebody who says it once and then never says it again. So I just kept asking my community, hit this, hit this, hit this. This is what we want. And also understanding you're not going to get everything under the sun. And I'll be completely honest. I got a lot of flack from people for not going harder on home growth. And I told them, I said, listen, if I come into a, this was back in 2019, 2020, if I go into the legislator's office with home grow as my number one, they're going to tell me to get the fuck out of their office. But if I can get six other equity policy considerations in here, I'll take that. And then when this industry is formed and we have the data, when they see the sky is not going to fall because people are smoking weed, then we can introduce more asks. But if we try to do it all at the same time, we're likely to not get any. So that was my process and that was my thinking. And I did get criticized for it. And obviously, it's not going to be perfect. That was just my experience and how I went about it. But you know, you do you. Well, I mean, if the people criticizing you are probably confusing two things. The fact that you're making a political or uh, not political, but uh, a, well, a political feasibility slash advocacy decision is different than you being for or against home grow. I think there's very few people I've met, including I would assume you, Jess, and myself that are against home grow. But this also goes back to what you had stated before in terms of identifying key stakeholders. I imagine getting the police on your side in that that conversation who in all likelihood, I'm guessing were against home grow, might have factored into that decision. And it's almost a... uh, a collective decision like you said if there's other policies that are going to be able to make its way make their way through in exchange and sometimes that's just the way the world works with this stuff unfortunately yeah it's all about timing also right like understanding like we're thinking long-term play here right so i wanted to like make sure you know that we got as much as we possibly could in legislation and whatever we couldn't, that we would get it in regulation. And so, you know, when people are like, well, you should ask for this and you should ask for this and you should ask for this. Like, listen, if anybody now comes up to me and tells me you should ask for this, I'm going to tell you, you go ask for that. You want that? You're going to have to go after it because if I had waited for somebody to ask and to demand what I wanted to ask and demand for, like likely it wouldn't have happened. So I think it's also a note to anybody who interacts, you know, with advocates is it's not the best way to approach us by saying you should have done this or you should be asking for this because I'm going to just throw it right back at you and ask you, tell me then what you are doing for this. And it just happens to me, you know, so often because people know my story and they, you know, they know all this. They're like, no, 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 but you're the person, you're the person that's going to get this done. You're the person. I'm like, no, you need to be you know, that person. And so part of, you know, this educational program that I'm creating with the state, the intent is not 100% to create more cannabis business license holders. It's to create an educated consumer base and an educated business and advocate base here in New Jersey, so that you can go out there and advocate for yourself, because nobody is going to advocate as harder for you than you. And I'm just going to give you the tools for you to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's your, it's your classic Monday morning quarterback type stuff. And again, it's just, 
you can't confuse the difference between whether or not someone is for or against a given issue, whether or not it's actually politically feasible at that given time to actually have that issue make it through. You know, like, again, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I've heard of a very good argument to support um, banning home grow to this point. It's usually made by law enforcement. Um, from any number of enforcement considerations from what I've heard, which is not terribly convincing in my opinion, but it, there's a difference between my personal opinion on it and whether if I'm an advocate, I think it, it's feasible for it to actually make it to it, to uh, legislation, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and I think home grow a hundred percent should be legalized, you know, and here in New Jersey, we're the only state in the tri-state area. We're surrounded by homegrown states, you know, like New York and Connecticut. And I think we may be the only one in the country with a legalized adult use regime without home grow. And to anybody like, don't get it twisted. I think it's a huge, huge problem. And definitely something that I have testified on, you know, over and over and over again. Um, but at this point, you know, back in 2019, 2020, there were also other groups really going hard for home grow but there weren't any groups going hard for social equity. And so that's really, you know, where I took up the mantle. So I think it's also important to understand what kind of advocate do you want to be? Because there's so many different kinds, right? Like, for example, you know, Ryan, what you do with your, you know, sessions on compliance and all this information that you put out there, like I would very much consider you an advocate, you know, of this industry because you're providing all of this free knowledge online, you're hosting these, you know, these podcasts and these webinars, and that's your way of advocacy, right? Different from somebody else who, let's say somebody wants to throw, you know, put on events and organize cannabis events for people to come to and learn. That's an advocate in and of itself. Then there are people who decide, well, I want to go protest outside the legislator's house. Great. That's a different type of advocate. And so for me, my advocacy came in the form of public education, talking to legislators who did like working with me because of the way, you know, that I approached it. And so when people are asking me, you know, like, how can I become an advocate? The first thing I ask them is, well, what type of advocacy are you most comfortable? Like what aligns with what you already do or what you're comfortable? Because people tell me I'm not a public speaker. I'm not a good writer. And that's totally okay. There's different ways to go about it. So I think also really important to emphasize that there's different types of advocacy out there. There are folks who just do social media or they do videos or they do reels or they do, you know, product reviews or just education in and of itself. There's so many different ways to advance your mission and it's not just one way. So I'm not here to tell you like, hey, you should be rallying your community, holding Zooms and instructing and shepherding people. That's just where my strengths lie. But for example, I'm not an organizer of events. I organized one event in my life for a cannabis business event, and I never did it again because it's just not something that I like doing, and it's not something that I felt that I was really good at. So I think find out what is most comfortable to you and where you feel like you can shine the best and leverage that for your advocacy. Do you have any recommended like educational resources? Samantha had asked, is there any reading material that you recommend um, for people wanting to get into the cannabis, indus cannabis industry and learn more about it? Yeah, you know, I get this question a lot when I talk to students. Um, and so one thing, you know, I think you have to recognize about the cannabis industry is unlike working in every other 
well-established industry, we actually have to pay attention to what's going on around the country, right? So the fact that like, you know, the Cureleaf news is spreading, it's because people are, you know, paying attention to what happened, you know, in Jersey. I have to pay attention to what's happening in Colorado, what's happening in Washington, what's happening in these states that have already have longer histories of adult use and medicinal cannabis. Um, so that's one thing. So I would say like signing up for like really awesome, like newsletters, like I, for one, um, you know, I, I really like marijuana moment. Um, I really like the fact that it gives me a daily newsletter, a snapshot of what's happening states around the country. And I can just read, you know, very quickly, um, you know, what's going on. If I want to read about consumer products, I, you know, subscribe to the BuzzFeed, um, newsletter as well to learn about new products. So that's just one way of sort of staying up to like current, you know, up-to-date events. Um, I will say if there's, you want to want to read about the industry and you don't really have a lot of time, the book that I actually use for my students, it's called Marijuana, A Short History. Now it was published in 2020. So obviously, you know, it's a bit outdated, but it's like a, a book like about like this thick and you can get through it pretty quickly. And it goes through the history of cannabis. It goes through legalization. It goes through federal. It goes through the history of medical cannabis as well. So I think personally, it does a really good job of condensing a lot of information in a very short, comprehensive book. So that's one others. Um, and then I've actually been starting to rely on a lot of reports. So, you know, one of the things is we are, we're getting more reports now. And back when I first started, like in 2017, we had no reports about what was going on in any of these states. And now, you know, we have like MCBA came out with their equity report. MJ Biz Daily comes out with their reports. New Frontier Data um, comes out with their reports. So I actually try to look at those companies and try to read those reports so that I can actually see what's happening in the cannabis industry in real time. Yeah, I, I would second marijuana moment. I think if I, MJ Biz, Leafly, um, and a couple others, but if I had to pick one media outlet, that would be the one I would pick as well as Marijuana Moment, which Richard gave us a little bit of context that I didn't realize. They said, he says, Marijuana, <coughs> Marijuana Moment are the people from Leafly who created their own website. And I didn't know that. So that's kind of interesting, but it makes sense that they would come from there. Um, Alejandra had a, had a question as well. Do you want to hop on the, uh, the Zoom to ask it? She's. Let me see if I can grab her. She had asked a question. I think when we were talking about homegrown, maybe whether or not the Massachusetts uh, Cannabis Control Commission regulators um, had any input or were helpful with New Jersey, the CRC, or the state legislature on the topic. Yeah. So here's the thing: is homegrown here in Jersey does not fall under the CRC's jurisdiction it falls, it's legislatively um, that bandit. And so the CRC actually can't do much about that. They can't actually legalize home grow because they have to operate within the confines of the statute. Um, but these legislators were educated by people from around the country on home grow and yet still decided you know, to go against it. And I am hoping that that will change. And along the same lines of the last question in terms of like reading resources, tell us more about you. Like, how did you come? How did you end up here? Like, if there's people out there that want to take a similar path as far as college, law school, the whole nine, how did you end up where you are? Uh, via an existential crisis, 
in 2017. That's how I ended up getting here. So it was in my first year of being an attorney and I was working in the entertainment space. So for folks, you know, out there or law students and they sound very sexy and very cool, but it wasn't an industry that I was particularly passionate about. And so I looked at my life and said, I have two choices. I can either leverage my legal career towards something that I like and that I'm passionate about, or I can quit being a lawyer and have a very hard conversation with my mother that, hey, you sacrificed everything to bring me to this country and do this. And I don't want to do this anymore. So this was in 2017. And I think I, you know, I think luck played a little bit of a part in it because this was the year that Governor Murphy announced that he was going to run his campaign campaign of weed and wages. And he said, I'm going to legalize weed within my first 100 days. And so I actually took everybody from my family out and said, we are voting for this man specifically because of cannabis. I know nothing else about him, but he's a Democrat and he's voting for cannabis. And, you know, this is what we want. So let's do it. And he obviously, you know, got into office and, uh, Obviously, we did not get legalized weed within his first 100 days. It took actually two years. And I looked at the industry as something that was so new that was really evolving. So maybe it would be a really good industry for a young attorney who is still trying to find her way to participate and become a leader and see if I could help shape it. And so when people ask me, you know, how should I enter? Well, what I did was I wrote a list of every cannabis event that was happening between New York and New Jersey. And at that time, there weren't as many, obviously, as there are now. And I hit up every single one. And so what I started to also do was in the morning, I would read about cannabis. And then during my lunch break, I would read about cannabis. And then in the evenings, I would go to networking events. And by the networking events, I really started to interact with the community. And I started to invest in that community because I started to see like, all these lawyers out here are really focusing on like these MSOs and these sort of, you know, bigger fish. And I looked around in my community and I said, probably in like four or five years, they're not going to be these small fish anymore. So I'm going to invest in this community right now and see where it takes me. And my community really aided a lot, you know, in my success, but it really was about like educating myself with books, with documentaries. I even took green, I think it's, what is it? Green flower. The green flower came out, I think in their first year in 2018 with their cannabis fundamentals course. And obviously right now they're just, you know, there was not as many educational, you know, resources on cannabis. So I actually ended up taking that course. Uh, it took me about like two months to complete so that I could understand the vernacular around cannabis and then just hitting up events every single day or like, you know, at least every single week to really familiarize myself with the culture, with the community. And also because we want to be consistent, right? So that's what I did. Education, showing up at events and talking to whoever would talk to me about it. And I came in through, <clears throat> through intellectual property, you know, actually, because I'm like, well, what else, what am I going to say about cannabis? I'm not in this industry. I'm just new to it, but I do know IP. And so I started to look at all of these brand names and logos at these trade shows. And I'd be like, hey, how are you protecting it? And they would be like, oh, it's my social media name and it's my LLC name. So, you know, I own it. And I realized there's a huge disconnect. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start educating them on brand protection to really start garnering that trust in the community. And then when I started doing that, I then started to really get into the advocacy conversation when I started to realize that all these lawyers here in Jersey, nobody was advocating for social equity or social justice. So I took it upon myself to say, 
maybe that could be me because, you know, I have a, I have a couple of privileges. I speak English, which a lot of people in my community don't. I became a citizen of this country when I was eight years old. So I don't have the fear of deportation for speaking out and being in this industry. And I'm a lawyer. So I understand these laws, and these regulations and what's about to go down. So I leverage those three privileges that I had to really be a voice for communities that maybe didn't have all those privileges. I mean, a lot of, a lot of things stick out to me in what you just said, but what really, really sticks out to me is your, when you were talking about the transition from going from entertainment law to what you do now, I like cannabis can sound cool from the outside looking in, but what I always stress to people is like, make sure it's actually something you're passionate about because especially if you're doing advocacy work, like if you watch Jess's Instagram or any social media, you'll see what a grind it is. Like you have to actually really love what you're doing to put the hours in to get to where you need to be. Would you agree? I would a hundred percent agree because while I feel enormously grateful to be a part of this industry and the fact that my days are hundreds percent spent, you know, on cannabis. It's also a very frustrating industry. And it's also an industry where you're not going to have clear answers and things are going to change constantly. And if you're a service professional, you have to stay apprised of all of those updates and changes that are happening in laws and regulations, you know, in the city. And so I think there's all those, this enormous amount of pressure also on folks in the industry to constantly stay apprised because you need to know how, how do I pivot from this? How do I adapt to this? And so if you're somebody who really likes stability and really likes black and white answers, like this may not be the industry for you and that's totally okay. But if you're comfortable dealing in the unknown, if you're comfortable with being frustrated, and if you're comfortable with things not making sense all the time, well, then yeah, it'll be a great industry because there's so much opportunity to shape it right now. And that's why I think it's such a beautiful industry that despite its flaws as any other industry, its ability to help out so many communities is unlike what we've seen, you know, in many industries because of the fact that cannabis has a very complex racial history. And so you do make, to me, a re like a greater impact being in this industry because it's so new and you're shaping it as you go. And, you know, even Ryan, you know, what, what you do with sending out all of these, you know, compliance tips, like I can't even imagine how many lawyers and consultants and service professionals you must have helped by simply providing that information online and helping to shape their careers and how they interact with their clients and even how they think about themselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, it comes up a lot. I was literally just on the phone with a lawyer minutes before we, um, before we got on this call, actually from New York set about setting up a compliance program. And I, I don't know. I, I always kind of joke, but it's also kind of not a joke that I'm a better lawyer than businessman. And I probably uh, go a little I'm a little too nice, I think, at certain points, probably. But I, I really do think there, and it goes back to what you were saying in terms of like advocacy it being different things to different people, right? I, I do, first of all, I feel good helping people, whether it's new consultants or attorneys in this space. But I also think, like, from like the movement perspective, if you want to call it that, that it's important that we have 
as many educated people as we can in this space. And I sort of look at it that way. And I also think just from like a, a, a business perspective that not everything has to be monetized, you know what I mean? So and I, I don't know, but um, not to be too corny about it, but uh, I think it's important that people be have access to information. I, it, not to get too down the rabbit hole with the AI and the, you know, the technology that's upcoming, but I, I think gatekeeping content or just like information in the way that people continue to is going to be a losing game in the long term, anyways, because that access yeah. is about to change dramatically. So, and we're all still learning, right? Like right. that's the thing is like we're and we're all learning like with each other, and mistakes are obviously going to happen because things are like brand fucking new, and this industry is going to evolve way beyond what we can even imagine. And to maybe some that may seem scary, but to me that's so cool. Like, because if you have like the skills and you put the work in to really help shape it, like you maybe can come up with a new license type. You can come up with a new regulatory scheme. Like there's so much opportunity out there for people who smart people with good intentions to get involved and do the work, you know, that they need to do. And so I also, I always tell folks, like, I think some people have like FOMO and they feel like they're missing out on this industry because they're not a part of it yet. But I'm going to tell you. I had FOMO when in 2017. In 2017, I thought that I was so far behind that I missed the ball on getting involved in the cannabis industry. And now I think about how absurd that thought was. So if anybody here is listening and wants to get involved and feels like I'm too late, there's so much happening, like that's just not true at all. You just, you got some catching up to do 100%, but it's totally fine because we're just going to continue building this. And I think there's a place for, a lot of people, and I also will say this, like, well, you know, we we're talking about predatory practices before and sketchy people in the industry. I have really met some of the most inspirational, beautiful people in this industry. I have made such wonderful friends and trusted colleagues and mentors in this industry. And it's just really amazing to see people's evolution of it because you're all in the same boat fighting for legalization and the legalization happened. And now I see my friends going after licenses. I'm getting involved with government. I see people going into academia, people starting their own businesses. And so it's because of the opportunity, you know, is there as long as you take advantage of it. And, you know, it's just, to me, it's, it's a cool industry with its flaws, obviously, but one that really at least to me propels me forward because i love this plant so much and i smoke weed every day i've been smoking weed since i was 17 and i have no plans to stop now so the fact that i can have a career around something that brings me an enormous amount of peace and you know has really helped with my own spiritual evolution like that's lit it's a win-win <laughs> yeah so um i won't keep you much longer this has been great but are you still doing trademark work in and out of the cannabis industry? I did want to ask you about that. Yeah, I am. So um, I'm still representing applicants. Uh, sorry, yeah, trademark um, folks who need trademark help. So businesses around the country. So that's plant touching, non-plant touching in the cannabis industry, outside the cannabis industry, but mostly within um, the cannabis industry. So for the folks here who may like wonder like, you know, what that type of work is like, well, think about the fact that you can't trademark your plant touching goods or services on the federal level, because of the fact that it is federally illegal. And if the whole purpose of trademark law is to avoid consumer confusion in the marketplace, well, you can have a 
brand of edibles in California and have the same brand of edibles in Massachusetts from an entirely different company. And there's very little legal recourse. So I have to come up with very creative strategies on how do we protect your plant touching services or goods by creating this sort of halo of protection with your non-plant touching goods and services. So it's one of those really funky things that we don't see in any other industry, this dichotomy that really affects business owners. Uh, but we do see it in trademark and it's pretty unfortunate. Whenever a law school student uh, asks me what area would you get into within cannabis, IP is usually one of the first ones I say, because I just think to your point, the, the patchwork of state by state registrations, inevitably you're going to have a, the same or similarly sounding brand in California as you do in Massachusetts. And what happens ultimately when things move federally in that fight? The trademark <laughs> litigation is going to be wild in a few years. Like when federal prohibition is lifted, it's, I don't even know what's going to happen. I am like, so like terrified of what's about to go down, which is why like, I really, you know, with my clients really make sure that they're protected in all sorts of ways, because these companies are going to really come out of nowhere. And you're going to probably have, and I see them all the time. Like, I look at the list of what's coming out in New Jersey in terms of like the, the names of the, the winners. And I'm like, I see 10 of them on one list that can all be confusing. And so when federal prohibition is lifted and federal trademark protection is available, we're going to see enormous, enormous amount of cease and desist, enormous amount of trademark litigation. So, so the folks out there, get your shit straight now and really try to avoid any punny marks. <laughs> and make sure it's something unique and distinct to you. It pains me to hear that because you know I love puns, but uh, that, <laughs> that feels like a good place to stop. Maybe we'll get you back on just to talk trademarks because that obviously we could talk for hours about that. Um, what's the best way people for people to get a hold of you, Jess? I know we had one person in the, the chat um, ask if you and I could stay on after, but maybe we'll just give him your contact information and he can reach out directly. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yes, I'm going to put my um, here. So I actually put my my Instagram. So my um, Instagram is the best way. Um, but if you do like just to like, really keep up with what I'm doing, but if there are sort of you know any legal you know type of you know inquiries things of that nature, then probably email would be best. So I'll put my email here too just in case anybody wants it. Um, and those are the two best ways to contact me. Awesome. I appreciate the time, Jess. We'll let you get back to uh, the event that you're at. Thank you so much for making this work. I know it's always kind of uh, an interesting thing to be able to hop on like this when you're you know, being pulled in different directions. So I really appreciate you making it work. And we'll talk to you soon. It's all, yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. And thanks to everybody also for spending part of your Friday uh, afternoon with me. Uh, and just to everybody out there, you know, keep pushing forward and keep doing your thing. And nothing done with good intentions is ever done in vain. So keep going. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Right, bye. bye. Thanks, guys. Ryan.